my great joy today to do something that many people don't ever get to do, ever, in a lifetime. So I am very, very, very pleased and grateful to the Lord that this would come about. Almost all of you would probably have people in your life that you'd say, God has used that person. God is the one that changes us. Absolutely. More than any, any other factor. And beyond my parents and my sweet wife, Vicki, who has impacted me, there are a handful of people. And these people cannot, they don't even have to know you exist. John Piper and different people, the, the ones that have impacted me, they never even knew I existed. But it's their speaking. I've listened to their messages. It's their writing. I've read their books and their blogs. It's even their demeanor and the way they interact with people as I've watched from a distance. And I've seen them at conferences that I've attended. And I just chose never to be that guy that stood in line forever to try to say hi. But I would just watch. C.J. Mahaney is one of those people at the top of my list. And here's why. It's not just, this is not just a, an admiration society. There's reasons, and there's reasons that I think you would agree with are, are worthy of being this way. My heart, you know I'm passionate. If you've been here any time, you know Brad's got a little passion. I just have often felt like, is there anybody else like this? And as I came here to be a part of this church plant in 1996, one of the things that was on my heart is I came here for us to be a sound doctrinally church that still preached the Bible, all of it, all of it, even the hard stuff, but preached in a way that people could get it on the bottom shelf and know how to go out and live it without compromising. Let's, let's have a high view of God, big God. He's sovereign. He elects, he draws, he calls, he saves, but we go and he's called us to go with gusto and with enthusiasm and give our lives and in worship to respond back to him in worship as if there is a risen living savior growing up. And as I was like this, I was constantly in services where someone was elbowing me saying, Brad, you're singing so loud. You're the only one because I was in reformed places where the doctrine's right, but it's so dead. I'm sorry. It is just dead. And so I'd go to charismatic places and tolerate stupid things being said just to be around people that sang like Jesus was alive. And they believed it. I was like, why can't these two rivers merge? Well, in 1997, I think it was a God thing. I don't know how I was even on Sovereign Grace's mailing list. I get a little flyer in the mail on my desk in the basement in the bedroom of our house, worldwide headquarters for Grace Fellowship Church. Where I'm answering the phone, hello, Grace Fellowship. How many of you were there in 1997 when we were in Turkey Foot Middle School? Yes, thank you for all four of you, five of you. Yeah. And I get this flyer, and it's titled, A Passion for God's Glory. And I was just like, oh, that sounds reformed. That sounds big God stuff, and it sounds lively, passion. And I got myself to that conference all by myself. And they were some of the most gracious people. They drew me in. They welcomed me. They didn't just leave me just sitting there. And I was taken. I was like, this is it. This is it. This is the blending of sound, solid, reformed, God-honoring doctrine. It's not man-centered. It's God-centered. But it's passionate. I started getting their CDs because they write music. I started getting their books. I started going to all their leadership conferences and worship conferences. And if you've ever wondered... What has shaped Brad and what has shaped Grace Fellowship? Because we have a DNA. We have some big rocks and we have a tone and a flavor here in the grace of God. And CJ would be the first to say that. But God uses people and movements. In the grace of God, you're going to have the privilege of hearing someone speak who this man and the movement that God chose to do. Sovereign Grace became a church planting network. They write songs. They write books. Oh, God has used them greatly. And we are the beneficiaries. How many of you have read Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney? Little, oh my, yes, the little orange book. And his book on humility, his book on why small groups that we use to train our... The fellow that he serves with all these years, Bob Coughlin, that we had a few weeks ago that preached, who's over the music. We use his book, Why Worship Matters, to train all our, 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 our worship team. I am so grateful that you didn't just decide to pastor and shepherd and lead one church, but to allow yourself to be a blessing to the wider church. We have been blessed. CJ's married to Carolyn. They have three married daughters, one son, 12 grandchildren. CJ loves Christ, loves people, 
loves the local church, and loves sound doctrine, and that is so rare. Please help me welcome C.J. Mahaney today. Thank you very much. Uh, This man knows how to uh, humble someone and wonderfully overwhelm them with his affection and his encouragement. And I'm very grateful for it. His friendship is a gift. Uh, Truth be told, it was he who adopted me as a friend. And I have been grateful, uh, very grateful, because he's been a true friend. You look up... Look up in Proverbs, Proverbs 17, 17, if my memory serves me. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. That's, that's your pastor. And by the way, he's a happy pastor. God, God wants happy pastors. Okay? Bible, I could draw attention to verses. I'm sure you're aware of them. Sadly, too often, I meet unhappy pastors. God doesn't want just faithful pastors. Faithfulness alone isn't sufficient. God wants pastors who serve him with gladness. Your pastor serves with gladness. When I meet a pastor who serves with gladness, I know there's a congregation that he is glad to serve. So I want to thank you for making it a joy for him to serve. Because to interact with him, even a brief and brief conversation, you're going to hear from him about his love for you and the joy he has of serving you. So thank you for making it a joy for him to be a pastor and a happy pastor at that. Thank you very much. Man, this is a happy place. Oh. Honestly, I am so sorry that this is coming to a conclusion, although I get lunch with this man so that I can ask him many questions because I've come here to learn, and I hope I can serve you. And I was just reminded as I look back, I should be given extra time for my opening comments. At least that's been my appeal, but that that appeal has been totally disregarded. That, That clock just keeps moving, but... But I'm saying this really should be like soccer. If, if I've got opening comments, then I should get stoppage time. And it should be added to my sermon. Although this group... That's right. Yeah. This, <laughs> there's, yeah, there's something um, impressive about this group. Because they're not thinking about the conclusion. Or they're concerned now that I have just freed myself from responsibility to a concluding moment. But that does set this group apart, doesn't it? Yes, very good, very good. I will, I will do my best. That's, that's really well positioned. It, it really is. It, it, I just want you to know, it isn't just numbers. It's like a voice. It's <laughs> Brad has given me a special exception, exemption. He's allowed me to preach three different sermons. I'm really grateful. That's not normal. Um, it's probably not even wise. But I, I've come to you... <laughs> My heart is just filled with sermons from the gospel according to Mark, and I'm very grateful that he's allowed me to preach three different ones. So if you'd please turn your Bibles to the gospel according to Mark chapter 12. We are going to devote our attention to the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 12, which I now have the privilege to read. And we have the privilege to be addressed by God himself through the reading of his word. And he, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. 
he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Jesus of Nazareth is the greatest storyteller who ever lived, the prince of parables. None of his stories is longer than a page, and yet every last one of them is a perfect masterpiece. With every story he told, with every story he told, our Savior also took one step closer to the cross. It was the last week of his life on earth and Jesus told a parable about the cross and the judgment to come. That is an eloquently written description by Phil Riken of the greatest storyteller who ever lived and the significance of this parable in particular. With every story he told, our Savior also took one step closer to the cross. And Mark invites us this morning to follow the Son of God as he takes this momentous step closer to the cross. This, this, this parable, in effect, becomes Jesus' fourth prediction of his suffering and death. And, and this prediction uniquely propels the plot forward. It, it propels the plot forward because of its content, and it propels the plot forward because of its immediate audience. Jesus' three previous passion predictions in chapters 8 through 10 were all made in private to his disciples, all made in private to his disciples in order to prepare them for his death, for they did not anticipate his death or his resurrection. But this prediction, the fourth prediction, is different because this prediction isn't made to his disciples in private. This prediction is made in confrontation and conflict with the Jewish leaders who will, in effect, be the human means of his suffering and death. Actually, the fulfillment of his previous predictions to his disciples of his death and resurrection is now underway. It it is actually unfolding before their very eyes. Mark writes in chapter 8, And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And so it's no accident that in the preceding passage, chapter 11, verse 27, we read, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Those he predicted would be the means of his suffering and death approach him, And they approach him to confront him in the temple. They they challenge his authority for he has previously cleansed the temple. So they are challenging his authority for in cleansing the temple on the previous day. He has exercised messianic authority. He has presumed divine authority over the temple. And he has presumed divine authority over these leaders. And so he responds to their questioning. They confront him. They question him. He responds to their questioning his authority with a question about the baptism of John. Their answer to his question is, in effect, his answer to their question. However, then, they decline to answer his question. They, they feign ignorance. 
Jesus says to them in verse 33, well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So they, in that moment, have been effectively silenced, but he wasn't finished with them yet. And after silencing them, he goes on to expose their true character and their wicked intent, and he does so by telling them a parable. So actually, this chapter division doesn't serve us. Because the interaction with Jesus and these religious leaders who are hostile to him, it doesn't conclude in 1127 it, 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 or 1133. It continues in 12.1. And he began to speak to them in parables. And in so doing, he takes one step closer to the cross. However, this step is like no previous step. And we just need to discover why this step is a unique step. So, so let's discover why this morning. And let's marvel together at this very sobering content and the sweet surprises that are revealed in this parable. Actually, it's been a while since we've heard Jesus speak in parables. Jesus, the last time Jesus spoke in parable was in chapter 4. So as James Edwards notes in his commentary, this is the only major parable outside of chapter 4 in the Gospel of Mark. And so the unique placement of this parable should alert us to its significance. So this is unique. This is significant. The last time we heard him speak in parables was in chapter 4. Now suddenly he's speaking in parables again in the context of this hostile environment and opposition. Suddenly he speaks in parables again. Why? Why suddenly? Why now? For what purpose? Well, the unique placement should alert us to its significance. And the unique placement is significant. It's significant in timing. It's significant in content. It is significant in audience. Actually, the telling of this parable at this time to these representatives of the Sanhedrin could not be more significant. The parable is addressed to them. Jesus is confronting them. Jesus is taking it to them. Since he's entered Jerusalem, everything has changed. Since he's come to the temple, everything has changed. So up until his entrance into Jerusalem, the time for the purpose of his mission had not unfolded as it had upon entrance into Jerusalem. Up to the entrance into Jerusalem, Jesus actually avoided unnecessary confrontation with religious leaders. But since entering Jerusalem, chapter 11, everything has changed. So after entering Jerusalem on Monday of that week, he makes his way to the temple. He curses the fig tree. He arrives at the temple. He overturns the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. They, they have never seen anything like this. On Tuesday, he silenced the religious leaders when they challenged his authority. And now he takes it to them in this parable of judgment. Jesus is on the offensive. He is now initiating confrontations with the religious leaders as part of God's perfect plan and timetable that would actually culminate in his arrest, in his death, and his triumphant resurrection. So... In this moment, in this parable, the Son of God is making eye contact with these religious leaders. He is confronting their arrogance and their hostility with a parable, a parable about his impending death, a parable about their role in his death, and the judgment of God that awaits them if they refuse to repent and submit to him. So, feel the tension. Feel the tension, observe the hostility, perceive the drama. This couldn't be more serious or sobering or significant. And there are eternal implications at stake for all. This parable is unique not only for its timing and content and immediate audience. This parable is unique because it's the most allegorical of all the parables. Normally, when we're reading or interpreting a parable, we, we need to be careful. We need to be careful to restrain ourselves from finding kind of spiritual meaning in each and every detail. However, in this parable, each of the main characters clearly 
represents someone. So if if we were to, in effect, roll the credits at the end of this parable, here's how it would read. A man, the owner of the vineyard, God the Father. The vineyard, Israel. The tenants of the vineyard, chief priests, scribes, elders, Sanhedrin. Servants, they're the prophets. The beloved son, that would be Jesus. This story, it's just remarkable. Because in a few words, Jesus tells Israel's story and he describes the history of Israel's relationship with God. But he he does so with the primary intent of confronting the chief priests, scribes, and elders with their wicked intent. William Lane writes, it's actually a judgment parable. Jesus' parable serves to expose the planned attempt against his own life and God's judgment against the planners. Verse 1 describes a scene that would be familiar to the original audience that was drawn from everyday life in Palestine. Jesus' use of a vineyard, it's intentional. His listeners would have perceived this as, as, as a common symbol of Israel in, in the Old Testament. It, appear, it appears actually to be drawn from Isaiah 5, where the vineyard symbolized the nation of Israel. However, in this parable, Jesus' accent and, and attention is clearly upon the tenants, the leaders in particular. It's not primarily upon the vineyard. So, so this would be, he's describing here in effect a common scene in everyday Palestine. There's specific symbolic imagery that his audience would have immediately perceived. And what is actually uncommon in this parable is, is the behavior of the landowner and tenants. Because the owner demonstrates this, this, this great care for his vineyard in verse 1, and then he leases it to tenants And he goes to another country. And then in verses 2 through 5, he sends servants to obtain fruit from his vineyard. And these servants are met with increasing violence. Verse 3, beat him, sent him away empty-handed. Verse 4, sent another servant, struck him on the head, treated him shamefully. Verse 5, sent him another, him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. So this, this is an unusually forbearing owner usually long-suffering with the tenants and sending servant after servant after servant despite the harsh treatment they have received. There was, however, one more. There was one more. There, There was one more. There was a unique individual he could still send. Verse six, he still had one other, a beloved son. His son. His beloved son. His son is unique. Oh, I mean, he had many other servants, but he only, had, he only had one son. His son is his heir. His son is beloved. His son is the much-loved son. And, and he, would now, he would now send his son. His son would go as the representative of the owner with the authority of the owner to claim what is due to the owner. And, and the owner assumes in verse 6, oh, they, they will respect my son. However, in verse 7, the tenants assume that if they murder the son, they will finally take possession of the vineyard. And so in verse 8, they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. And then with no doubt, oh my goodness, with no doubt the rapt attention of everyone present, (laughs) but making eye contact with only the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, Jesus asked two rhetorical questions. Verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He doesn't wait for their response. He just states, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyards to others. So the owner executes justice on the tenants and he gives the vineyards to others. And then he asks the representatives of the Sanhedrin, (laughs) verse 10, have you not read the scripture? (laughs) Just have to imagine for a moment their facial expression. These are the experts. These are the experts in the scripture. These are the guardians of the scriptures. These are the teachers of the scriptures. Yes, they would very much be familiar with this scripture. But they've not understood this scripture. And this had to be provocative to them when he says to them, Have you not read the scripture? And then he quotes Psalm 118 verse 22 and 23. 
confirming the parable and in effect concluding the parable with a reference from Holy Scripture. And here is what is particularly unique and unusual about Jesus telling this parable. And Mark draws our attention to this in verse 12. So look at verse 12. For verse 12 informs us, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Oh, that's another unique aspect to this parable. This parable was unique because this parable, listen, this parable was actually told for the purpose of being understood. For the purpose of being understood by those who oppose Jesus. So let me just remind you, you are well taught. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus was very clear about his use of parables. And he said, after telling the parable of the sower to a very large crowd by the sea, when the disciples were alone with him, they asked him about the parable. And he said to them, well, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but to those outside, everything is in parables. So Jesus explains to the disciples the purpose of parables. He didn't randomly speak parables. Parables were always purposeful. And he taught parables in contexts where there was opposition to him. So in the context of hostility and opposition, Jesus makes a sharp distinction between insiders, disciples, and outsiders, those opposed, by teaching in parables. So parables were designed to reveal and conceal depending on the state of one's heart. So parables are invitations to the humble to pursue what is hidden. But for those who are hard of heart and in opposition to the Savior, the parables remain a mystery. So Jesus taught in parables to those hostile toward him and hard of heart. It was really a means of judgment for their hardness of heart and unbelief. So for the hard of heart, for those who are hostile to him, the parables concealed. They didn't reveal except for this parable. For, verse 12, they perceived. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So at this momentous moment, Jesus tells a parable that they perceive. Their their eyes are opened momentarily and they recognize, the religious leaders recognize themselves in the parable. Mark Strauss writes, the purpose of parables is here reversed. Whereas prior to this, they concealed truth from those with hard hearts. This one reveals the truth and so provokes the climax of the story. The messianic secret is being unveiled and with it, listen, the messianic secret is being unveiled and with it a rising tide of opposition. So the religious leaders, they perceived they were being addressed as the tenants who had rebelled against God and persecuted and killed the prophets. And they perceived that Jesus' reference to the beloved son in verse 6 was a reference to himself. And they perceived that Jesus was pronouncing God's judgment upon them for their rejection of him. So verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vineyard the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Oh my, this this was no pleasant parable. This was no polite parable. This was no flattering communication. Jesus is taking it to them. Imagine the scene. There they were, standing in the midst of the magnificent temple. And Jesus is informing them of the impending judgment of God. And these men who have the titles and the authority over the temple are also, they're being informed that it will all be given to others, which in this case meant the disciples (laughs) who they certainly didn't consider as qualified. And and this all culminates with, with a lesson from scripture transitioning in effect from an agricultural metaphor to an architectural one as Jesus confirms the judgment of God by citing Psalm 118 verses 22 and 23 and informing them that the stone they have rejected, a clear reference to himself, it, that stone turns out to be the cornerstone. That turn, stone turns out to be the capstone. That stone turns out to be the most important stone in the building. So he informs them that their rejection 
rejection of God's son. It was the plan and the purpose of God. And the rejected stone will become the most important stone. And the rejected son will become the exalted son. And all of this is by the Lord's doing. In other words, the tenants and their wicked schemes will not prevail. But rather than sympathize with the plight of the owner and repent, instead they harden their hearts. Peter Bolt writes, these men recognize the parable, speaks to them, and so perhaps ironically, they are all the more eager to kill him. Ironically, the telling of the parable, listen, the telling of this parable provokes the fulfillment of the parable. It, it, is, it is clear here. It is only the popularity of Jesus and the presence of crowds in the midst of the temple that restrains the religious leaders from arresting him. Now, now eventually, they're going to recruit a, a betrayer. They're, they're going to arrest Jesus under the cover of darkness. But boy, make no mistake about it. By telling this parable, by telling this parable, he has moved one step closer to the cross. And he knows this. And even though this parable was told primarily to confront the chief priests, scribes, and the elders, oh, listen, the parable has relevance for each of us as well. It has relevance for my non-Christian friends present today. It has relevance for you. This parable, if you're you're not a Christian today, but, but you have come and your coming is, is so commendable. I mean, we, we are so grateful you are here. And, and I would love to have a personal conversation with you after this meeting, if I can, if I can serve you in, in any way. But to my non-Christian friends, I want, I want to make eye contact with you. This, this parable, it is a gracious reminder of God's love. And it is a gracious warning of God's judgment. It, it's a gracious reminder of God's love for, for sinners, sinners like you. And like me, I mean, really, in some way, prior to conversion, we should all locate ourselves in the tenets of this parable. And even though servant after servant has been mistreated by the tenants, in some way represent all of us, even though we are clearly God-defying sinners, he sends his son He sends his son to die for our sins. Though though we merit only condemnation, he sends his son to bear that condemnation, to bear the very judgment that we deserve. J.R. Packer helpfully writes, it is staggering that God should love sinners. Yet it is true. God loves creatures who have become unlovely and unlovable. There was nothing whatever in the objects of his love to call it forth. Nothing in us could attract or prompt it. Love among persons is awakened by something in the beloved, but the love of God is free, spontaneous, unevoked, uncaused. God loves people because he has chosen to love them, and no reason for his love can be given except his own sovereign good pleasure. So... My non-Christian friend, here's what I plead with you. I plead with you to recognize. I plead with you to recognize God's love for sinners like you in sending his beloved son to be crucified on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. Oh, I appeal to you to recognize. Behold the love of God for sinners like you and me. And contemplate, my non-Christian friend, contemplate God's patience with you. God has been patient with you. Though, though, Though your life has been God ignoring, God defying, God has been patient with you. And the, the only, actually, the only explanation for your continued existence in light of your defiance is his mysterious mercy. And if you respond, oh, if you respond to God's kindness revealed in Jesus and his death for your sins, well, then you, you will know forgiveness of sins and freedom from fear of future wrath. And so I want to appeal to you, respond. I want to appeal to you, respond today. Respond now. Why wouldn't you want to respond? Respond. And if you don't respond, 
Listen, if you don't respond, oh my, hear not only my content, but feel my tone. I say this with fear and trembling. I do not say this with anger or self-righteousness. If you do not respond, you can be certain. You can be certain of future wrath. Just like these religious leaders. That's why Paul draws our attention in Romans 11, obtains our attention and says, Behold the goodness and the severity of God. Both, folks, are revealed in this parable. And if his goodness is spurned, well, then his wrath will be experienced. This this is how God, in his holiness and his justice, deals with those who reject his goodness and reject his son. I can't soften this. I can't soften this and it wouldn't serve you. It would only mislead you if I did soften it. Continued rebellion will be met with holy justice. Rejection of the son's gracious sacrifice will result in the righteous wrath of the owner. So let me say to my non-Christian friend, don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Don't be like these proud fools. Acknowledge your need for a Savior and acknowledge God's gracious provision of a Savior. Respond. Respond to his goodness now so that you do not have to experience his severity eternally. But it isn't just non-Christians I want to talk to. No, this parable actually is most relevant for the Christian as well. For this parable... There's just no way to read this, to reflect on this. There is no way for me to preach on this and be unaffected by this. Times I try to talk at warp speed so that my words will run ahead of my emotions. But when you study this parable, you will be run down by your emotions for the love of God that is revealed in this parable. This parable reminds us Reminds the Christian of the love of God the Father and the sacrifice of God the Son. It reminds us of the Father's personal, particular love. And it reminds us that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. So the Christian must personalize this. The Christian should personalize this. Listen, if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian... Jesus had you in mind when he said, and give the vineyard to others. The new Israel, the church made up of Jew and Gentile. He had, if you're a Christian, he had you in mind. Listen, the appropriate response of the Christian to this parable is to wonder and to worship. That's the appropriate response of the Christian to this parable. We we are to wonder and we are to worship at the plan and the purpose of God to send his son to die on the cross as our substitute for our sins. This, this, this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's, That's the appropriate response. That's the appropriate response of the Christian. The appropriate response of the Christian to this parable is to wonder and worship because of the love of God the Father for those who are undeserving and ill-deserving, and that would be you and me. And the love of God the Father, the love of God the Father is is particularly revealed in verse 6. Verse 6 is one of the most moving verses in all of Scripture. He had still one other. A beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them. The, the, the warm relationship between the father and the son should be noted. A beloved son. By the way, that would be the third reference to beloved son in Mark's gospel. Echoes of Jesus' baptism. The father breaks in, breaks through. This, this is my much loved son. 
the transfiguration. Father cannot restrain himself in that moment either. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And now here, the third reference to beloved son in Mark's gospel. Listen, these three references, they are to impress upon us the warm relationship between father and son. They are to impress upon us They are to impress upon us the Father's sense of loss in sending his Son. In his commentary on Mark, James Edwards really effectively captures the love of God the Father revealed in this parable, in this verse in particular, when he writes, I'm going to need a tissue. So sorry. Do it. Silly. And, and preferably an unused one. Thank you very much. So just, just, <laughs> What farmer in his right mind would surrender his son to such tenants? It is a question worth asking, for it suggests the indefatigable love of God. So when you read verse 6, knowing what precedes the verse, knowing what follows, don't you want to intervene? I want to intervene. I want to intervene and I want to say to the Father, don't send him. What are you doing? Pay attention. You, you, you've sent one servant after another servant after another servant. They've all been mistreated all been beaten. Many have been killed. Send your son. No. Don't, don't. Don't send him. How could you send him? Why would you send him? Please don't send him. There is only one explanation for surrendering his son to these tenants. For God so loved the world. He did not spare his own son. So Christian, could I encourage you to be freshly convinced of the love of God the Father for you? Christian, you should actually be feeling God's personal, particular, and passionate love for you from verse 6. Christian, you should be convinced of his love and you should be assured of his love. And if you find yourself... I'm not, not convinced, not assured, then I think here's the question. What else could he do? What, what more could he do to convince you of his love for you? What, what, 
What else could he do? What more could he do to assure you of his love for you? This was the Lord's doing. It should be marvelous in our eyes because it reveals his love for sinners like you and me. So we are to, we are to wonder and worship. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But the wonder and worship doesn't stop there. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Wonder and worship at the love of the Father for you. Wonder and worship at the love of the Son for you. We, we are to wonder and worship at the sacrifice of the Son. Jesus is telling this story about himself. It's a parable about him. And listen, by telling this parable, and he is doing so intentionally, by telling this parable, here's what's happening. By telling this parable, he knows this. By telling this parable, he is taking one step closer to the cross. Because he knows this parable will provoke them. To move from intent to actuality and ultimately execution. So when, this is why this parable, has, it's, it's full of surprises. It's so sobering, but then it's also full of these surprises. So it, it leaves us just marveling because telling this parable is a demonstration of his love. So if you miss this demonstration of his love, well, then you haven't really fully understood this parable. He tells it of himself, knowing it will provoke them, provoke them to fulfill their role in killing him. So rightly does Phil Riken write, This story is much more than a parable. It is really a prophetic autobiography. The storyteller is telling the story of himself. Jesus knew that in sending the son, the father was sending him to die. Jesus knew exactly what would happen to him at the hands of evil men. Having persecuted the prophets, they would slaughter the beloved son. It was a brutal, horrible crime. It was the worst thing that anyone has ever done. The murder of God's infinitely perfect son. Nevertheless, this was all part of God's plan. This wasn't an accident. This was not a tragedy. Not an accident, Jesus couldn't avoid a tragedy, just wasn't able to avoid. No, this was the plan and purpose of God. This was the hour for which he came. This was the plan and purpose of God. His rejection becomes our salvation. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His death was a divine necessity. He must suffer in our place for our sin so that we might be saved from God's righteous wrath. So as John Stott says in summation, divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. This brothers and sisters, it was all the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. It is all the object of human wonder and worship. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray first, I pray with all my heart for non-Christian 
friends who are present today who would have honestly acknowledged at the beginning of the service, I'm not a Christian, but I'm here. I want to hear. I'm interested. They've, they've humbly come. Oh, Lord, I pray they would locate themselves in this parable. And most important, I pray they would locate you in this parable. I pray they would behold your goodness and that they would behold your severity. I pray they would be appropriately frightened by your severity. And I pray they would be undone as they behold your goodness in sending your son to die for sinners like us. So reveal the gospel to them so that they might wonder and worship, so that this might become marvelous in their eyes and they might say, it's the Lord's doing. And Lord, for the majority who are Christians, oh Lord, I, I pray that they would be blindsided by your love this morning. That, that, that as we made our way through this parable, that they would be surprised that, that actually this parable reveals the love of God the Father personally and particularly for each and every Christian present. Oh, I pray that they would feel your love and know your love for there is, there is, there is no more compelling demonstration of your love than the sending of your beloved son. And I pray that they would also know the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for coming and telling this parable, knowing that it would provoke the fulfillment of this parable and doing so so that we might be forgiven of our sins so that we might marvel, so that we might wonder and worship. So Lord, as we drive off this campus, I pray our hearts would be filled with wonder and worship. I pray today that tears would spontaneously come to our eyes as we ponder this parable and verse six and seven in particular. Overwhelm us by grace, Lord. It's all you're doing and it is. It is marvelous in our eyes. Thank you in Jesus' name.